0: All right, good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 4? In Daniel chapter 4, guys, we have the culmination of Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual journey. The Lord has been working on him for about 30 years, showing him that the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael was the one and only true God. Now, we've already seen the first time God impressed King Nebuchadnezzar with this knowledge was when he gave Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, when he gave Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of it in chapter 2 because Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I had this dream called on all of his wise guys and said, look, uh, I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is and ask you to interpret it because you'll make something up. I want you to tell me what the dream was and then give me the interpretation. And they say, King, there's no man alive that can do that. Well, that's true, except if a man is in contact with the God of heaven, then they can do all things, right? So that was the first time that Nebuchadnezzar was impressed by the God of Israel. And the second time that God impressed King Nebuchadnezzar was in chapter 3, when he protected Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their, their Babylonian names, of course, uh, when God protected them from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. Threw him in there, and are walking around having fellowship in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar can't believe it, and he's really impressed and so on, right? Uh, however, it's one thing to be impressed. It's another thing to be impacted, <laughs> broken, and saved. And that became King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in chapter 4, how God finally broke him and saved him. And this chapter is really written by him. It was really written by him. It's his testimony. All right. And uh, the way the Lord broke him was interesting. The Lord accomplished this through something called lycanthropy, which comes from two uh, words, lycos, meaning wolf, and then anthropos, the word for man. Uh, The dictionary defines lycanthropy as, and I quote, a form of madness involving the delusion of being an animal, usually a wolf, with corresponding altered behavior. We'll see that as we go. Verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, he's writing this now, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Guys, that to me is the language of a guy who's saved. Now you can argue with me I'm not saying all scholars or commentators agree that Nebuchadnezzar got saved. I'm thoroughly convinced this guy got saved. And I think we're seeing his testimony unfolding. And these are the words to me of a saved man. And notice how he exalts God and not himself. A big difference from how he previously exalted and honored himself just before God broke him. We'll see that in a moment. Also notice how he is compelled to praise God and give him glory, and how he felt compelled to tell others about him. All qualities are characteristics of those who are saved and filled with the Spirit of God. Remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 18, verse 5? He said, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled. This is, I'm saying, Luke is writing this about Paul. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And then Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels me. Look, when the Spirit of God lives in us, He compels us, not forces us, but prompts, motivates. It's really kind of a a bubbling up. The psalmist said it. Uh, this, This praise is bubbling up from within me. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're so on fire for the Lord that things bubble up. And one of the things is you want to praise God Another thing is you want to tell others about your God. I mean, the desire to witness to people about Christ, to me, is one of the greatest evidences that a person is saved of anything I know. Because unbelievers can be kind. They can be loving. They can be generous, right? Unbelievers can offer God praise. Many do go to church and praise Him in their worship services. But it's that desire to tell others about the Lord. That is the thing to me that unbelievers just don't do all right with all their religion and so on it's that is one of the qualities of being saved and spirit-filled that's to me undeniable and we see it here that God had given Nebuchadnezzar a heart to praise him to give honor and glory to God and to tell others about him he's writing to everybody to all people's nations and languages he wants to witness to the whole world uh, who God is all right well Let's let King Nebuchadnezzar tell us from his own mouth what God did to break and save him. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, listen, and flourishing in my palace. The word flourishing literally means to be green. (laughs) To be green. It's a word used of foliage and green trees. What he's saying is that's just kind of a poetic way of saying, you know, I, I, I was sitting back in my palace. I was like a huge tree. Flourishing, prospering is the idea just prospering things couldn't have been better. I didn't have a care in the world It's kind of interesting how God sometimes will wait till you least expect it to pull the rug out all right to, you know you're, it's a, I've heard a lot of people say that they came to Christ when they were at the bottom that's true but sometimes the Lord will pull the rug out from somebody who's on top Nebuchadnezzar was on top but God pulls the rug out to get his attention verse 5 I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Now, guys, let me just stop and say this: getting dreams from God doesn't mean you're more spiritual than anyone than anyone else. It could mean you're less spiritual. So, what do you mean? Well, Pharaoh got dreams. Nebuchadnezzar got dreams, and they were both unsaved, hard-hearted pagan dictators. Uh, sometimes God will give somebody a dream. It's a way of speaking to them because they're so hard-hearted and or hard-headed, they won't listen to anyone else. And, and God is very gracious. God, and I've told you this before, and I know you know it, but the Lord in these last days is really moving quickly, and He loves Muslims, and because they have been raised in an environment or in a country where they've never really heard the gospel, God is appearing to them in dreams. Not be, Some of them are hard-hearted, but uh, many of them are just deceived and God is gracious and he's appearing to them in visions and dreams and sharing the gospel with them and many Muslims. I heard one ministry that deals with uh, Muslims and all said a million Muslims a month are coming to Christ. I hope that's true. That's awesome, you know, but God will sometimes, he's so gracious, he will sometimes, if people are so hard-headed they won't listen to him, Uh, verbally then he'll appear to them in a dream and speak to them through visions and dreams verse 5 nebuchadnezzar said i saw a dream made me afraid thoughts on my bed visions of my head troubled me verse 6 therefore i issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream then the magicians the astrologers the chaldeans and the soothsayers came in And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. Let me stop there. It's interesting that here Nebuchadnezzar has another dream that troubled him. Now, this is a second one that took place 30 years after the one we studied in chapter two. That dream, that first dream. That troubled him. None of his wise men, astrologers, magicians, soothsayers, could interpret for him. Well, as we said, actually, he was asking them to do a little something more. Tell me the dream first and then give me the interpretation. And, of course, they couldn't do that. And uh, as we studied in chapter 2, that dream was eventually interpreted by Daniel because when the, the king got so furious, as we have studied, that his wise men couldn't give him the dream and the interpretation, he said, that's it, he ordered that they all be uh, killed and word came to Daniel and his friends because they fell into that category and uh, Daniel asked the captain of the guard what's going on why is the king's decree so hasty well and he told him what happened and Daniel said let me go into the king let me talk to him so Daniel went in he must have been pretty liked by Nebuchadnezzar because these Oriental kings they didn't uh, cut you any slack and the king let Daniel come in and Daniel said look king give me a little time and I'm sure we can make the king know known what the dream is and the interpretation so he went home, and they had a quick prayer meeting, and God revealed to Daniel what the dream was and the interpretation. So uh, you know, so he went back, and then Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely astonished and, and very impressed. You'd think after those guys couldn't interpret the dream, the first one he had, you, you'd think he would have kind of bypassed all these other wise guys, this, you know, this pagan god squad he had going on, because they were all religious guys, uh, and would have gone straight to Daniel for the interpretation. Why fool around, right? The only thing I could think of was that Daniel was away on the king's business, and Nebuchadnezzar was so, you know, burdened to know what this dream meant. I mean, he was anxious. He was losing sleep. Uh, you know, he wanted to have some peace from the anxiety he was experiencing. Uh, so that he thought, well, I'm going to give Daniel's not here. I'm going to give these guys a, a, another shot at this to see if I, I'm so wanting to know the interpretation so badly. I, I'll, I'll take a chance on these guys. Maybe they can help me. Maybe they can interpret the dream, of course, but we, uh, we read that they couldn't, obviously. I like what uh, pastor and author David Jeremiah said on this, uh, along these lines. He said, and I quote, It has been said that no matter how often the wisdom of the world fails, we run right back to the same quacks who have never had the answers. We go to these secular humanist counselors who don't help, and finally we find a Christian counselor to get us straightened out after we have exhausted all the human possibilities, we do the thing we should have done in the first place, end quote. Right, that's probably very true. And so the king turns to these guys again, but of course, as I said, they couldn't help him. But eventually Daniel got back from his assignment for the king. The term at last in verse 8 suggests Daniel was away and finally returned. So you know, Nebuchadnezzar quickly calls for him. Daniel comes in. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's feeling is, look, if there's anybody in the kingdom, Daniel, who can interpret this dream, you can, because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so verse 8, again, it says, But at last Daniel came before me. I told him the dream before him, saying, verse 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. That would be the wise men, obviously. Uh, doesn't mean he was over them, but he was the top wise man in the kingdom, because he, he was so wise. He says, Because I know that the Spirit of, of the Holy God is in you. And no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could, it could be seen to all the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed through it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Now, guys, this watcher was a, a pagan way of describing an angel. Verse 14, He cried aloud and said to me, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Leave it there in the tender grass of the field, just the stump and the roots. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze. interesting how it changes from let it to let him, because the tree is Nebuchadnezzar's, we're going to see. But let him graze with the beast's on the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. Now, guys, the seven times is probably a reference to seven years. Why do I say that? Because in the book of Daniel, the word time or a time is used to represent a year. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter seven, also you see this in chapter twelve. But I'll just read it one out of chapter seven, verse twenty-five. It says, And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, when we get there, and I'll give you a little preview, this is speaking of the Antichrist, the Antichrist, who's speaking these pompous words against the Most High. We'll see that in detail when we get there. But um, the Antichrist, as we're going to see, reigns, by force uh, over the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. First three and a half, well, he's, uh, he's thrust into power by the world community. Something catastrophic has happened. There has been several suggestions what it might be or a combination thereof. Uh, some kind of a limited nuclear uh, war, uh, possibly uh, some kind of an EMP, electric magnetic pulse, a nuclear weapon detonated in the atmosphere creates this pulse which wipes out all circuitry and and, does not just knock it out for a while, it fries it. So you're instantly, if an EMP went off, we'll say, over New York, the whole eastern seaboard would immediately be plunged into the 1800s. All technology would be dead, all the electricity, pumping stations for water, everything would be knocked out completely. That would be quite a catastrophe. Some say, well, it could be some kind of a worldwide banking collapse, financial collapse. Yeah, there's all kinds of scenarios we could plug in. But uh, something happens to cause the world to want this leader, whoever he is, Uh, he's obviously brilliant. Well, we know he's he's actually um, possessed by the devil himself. But he's going to be brilliant. He's going to be very charismatic. He will have supernatural power. Second Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 9 to 11 tells us that. Lying signs and wonders, he'll be able to do. But the first three and a half years, the world will, you know, worship this guy basically and want him to be their leader. At the midpoint, he puts up his image in the Holy of Holies stops the worship of the true God uh, in the temple there and demands to be worshiped now as God. And I'm getting ahead of the whole story, but, uh, but now he becomes a military dictator for the last three and a half years. We know it's three and a half years. Uh, Daniel in chapter 7 calls it a time, times a year, two years, half a time, half a year. Uh, during that time, the Antichrist will be persecuting and killing tribulation saints. The church is out of here. I'm totally pre-trib. I believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation period begins, before the Antichrist is even revealed uh, publicly. He might be around right now, but I'm talking about before he becomes the world leader. Uh, The church is out of here. Well, Daniel 4.17, This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men Gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Again, these watchers and holy ones—same group, uh, really—is a reference to angelic beings. Now, that term "watchers" uh, is very prevalent in some of the uh, some of the uh, newer, from this point, we're reading about some of the newer writings of the Jewish people. Uh, they go back far from where we are now but they were future from where Daniel was but one author said and I quote the angelic watchers are widely attested in later Jewish literature of the Hellenistic and Roman eras perhaps the best known example is the book of the watchers in Enoch first Enoch uh, chapters 1 to 36 and uh, the author says this is speaking of fallen angels so these watchers angels well if they're angels there's are two different groups fallen angels and faithful angels those that followed Satan, the fallen ones. Those that were true to the living God, the faithful ones, and so on. So this, uh, this author says that uh, this book of watchers in First uh, Enoch, uh, chapters 1 to 36, is speaking of fallen angels. Elsewhere, the term refers to righteous or good angels who watch and never sleep. And then he mentions some of these apocryphal books, the Jubilees, chapter 4, 1 Enoch 20, chapter 39 chapter 71 and so on you can go online if you these are not inspired books but they're interesting they reflect some of the thinking of the period and so you know just to give you a a flavor of that but in and uh, but some authors as i was doing a little research some authors really think that these watchers were extraterrestrials now if you watch the history channel you'll get a lot of this okay and um, I told you one time I was, and I don't really watch the History Channel for stuff like this on the Bible because it's so out there. It's so sensationalistic. They're just trying to come at the Bible in such a sensational way as to get people to watch their shows, their dopey programs about this. Okay. I was watching one program, and right after this was presented, I turned it off on the History Channel where they were claiming that the Ark of the Covenant was some kind of an alien device, some kind of a power source from a, from an alien civilization, and that whoever possessed it had unlimited power. Well, that's baloney, okay? As we have talked about, you know, the uh, Israelites possessed it and took it into battle against the Philistines and still got the snot kicked out of them, and the Philistines took the thing for several years. So, you know, in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, The wheel within a wheel and the light, that was an alien spaceship. You know, I'm just going to stick with what the Bible says, okay? Uh, You know, John 10, Jesus said, you know, uh, my sheep, they know me. I'm going to draw them. I have sheep from another fold. Them I will draw also. Aliens. He's talking about aliens on other planets. No. (laughs) Israel and the Gentiles, okay? So be careful, all right? But in verse seventeen, it sounds as if these watchers and holy ones are in charge. If you read the passage, uh, let me just say this: they are, in a sense, but only in the sense that they are serving God as those who carry out His bidding. Verse twenty-four makes it abundantly clear: this is the most high, most high God's will, and these watchers, these angels, are carrying out His bidding. Okay, with Nebuchadnezzar, what was, what was his bidding? Well. His bidding with regard to King Nebuchadnezzar was to humble him by breaking him of his pride so that he recognized that it was the God of Israel, you know, almighty Jehovah God, who was sovereign over the affairs of men, kingdoms, world, you know, nations and so on, world events. Man thinks that he's in charge. Uh, Leaders think that they're running the show. Uh, By the way, um, Caesar Augustus believed that in Luke 2, you know, that he was calling the shots, this little guy in Rome, who was the big shot of the world at the time. And the Lord needed to get Joseph and Mary uh, from Nazareth, 70 miles to the south, to Bethlehem, because she was ready to deliver. There's no way they were going to make that trip on their own. But the prophecy was the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, right? In the county of Ephrathah, not far from Jerusalem. And so what did God do? He pulled a few strings on his puppet in Rome and said, "Hey, Hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to have a census? Caesar Augustus thinking, hey, I think it'd be a great idea to have a census. So he passed a hasty decree that everybody had to go back to their their hometown. And Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because that's where he was from. And that's where, okay, you get the idea. God's in control. And so he's about ready to uh, exert that control in such a way over Nebuchadnezzar's life, not to force him to believe. I am not a believer that God has an irresistible will that we cannot resist in the sense that if he says you're getting saved you have no choice in the matter you're going to get saved no i believe that god will put the pressure on us uh you know when you think about it i don't believe god forces anyone to believe but i think he can make their lives so miserable they will beg to be saved okay nebuchadnezzar was broken and he of his own free will accepted the lord which we'll see in a moment but his bidding god's bidding was to break Nebuchadnezzar, because he loved him, wanted to humble him, so they recognized that the God of Israel was in charge. He is the true and living God. It was all about teaching Nebuchadnezzar about God's sovereignty. Verse 17, once again, In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, verse 18, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So there was a period of time now, we don't know how long, some commentators said an hour, I don't know how they know that, but it was a while where... After Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream says, "Now, what's the interpretation?" Daniel's like, "Oh my God, I don't want to tell them. It's not good." Okay. Well, you know, the king must have picked up on the look on Daniel's face, and um, he said, uh, "The king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you." Belteshazzar answered and said, "My lord." May the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. 30 years has passed since Daniel and his friends have been brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. During the course of that time, he has grown very fond of Nebuchadnezzar and no doubt Nebuchadnezzar has grown fond of Daniel and his friends. But Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. He did. And um, he didn't want to tell him what the dream actually meant. But the king says, look, don't. I want to know it don't worry about how bad it is. Just give it to me straight, okay? So Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, verse 20, he said, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beast's of the field dwelt in whose branches the birds of the heavens had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Babylon was the world empire at that time. And so as Daniel began to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he explained that Nebuchadnezzar was the tree. Now, guys, I'm I kind of feel Nebuchadnezzar figured that part out already. It was what came after, uh, what happened to the tree, that he's really concerned about. And Daniel went on to say that God had exalted God had exalted Nebuchadnezzar, and had made his kingdom great, so that it spread throughout the known world, and its branches covered all nations and peoples, which is represented by the beasts under the tree and the birds of the heavens and its branches. In other words, right at this moment, because of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. His kingdom was in control, and he had conquered everyone and now had brought peace to the world, the known world. And uh, everyone looked to Babylon, the king, to supply their food and to uh, protect them. I mean, you know, you were a subject of King Nebuchadnezzar. You were safe because he was so powerful is the idea. And so uh, Daniel is acknowledging God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I did this for you. I made you great. I caused your your kingdom to spread and to cover the whole known world as the idea. But because Nebuchadnezzar had not given the God of heaven glory for what he had done, but, you know, instead took credit or glory for himself for all the success he had, well, the idea is that God was going to judge the king and humble him until he acknowledged the truth. Until he acknowledged the truth. So verse 23, And inasmuch, As the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times, seven years, pass over him. The fact that the tree would be chopped down, but the stump and the roots would be left in the ground. Well, we're going to find out later. That's exactly what the interpretation tells us. But it indicates that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be destroyed completely and that he would be restored and flourish once again. The iron and bronze band around this tree stump, which of course the stump represents Nebuchadnezzar, who has been cut down now. But the iron and bronze band could be a reference to some kind of shackles that, they put on the king uh, so he didn't wander away. Or some kind of a uh, iron and uh, bronze fencing they put around uh, a part of a field near the palace uh, so that you know he could walk around like an animal and graze on the grass and uh, not wander away, obviously. So they wanted to keep the king close to the palace. Uh, probably what is uh, in view there while he was, you know, underwent this madness, okay, this lycanthropy. Uh, Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel says to this king, look, this is what God has decreed. Now, it can't be changed, but if you were to humble yourself, stop living, you know, a sinful life, help the poor, because these despots really didn't think much of the poor. I mean, they were just all about power, okay? But Daniel says, you know, basically, the God of heaven is gracious, and if you humble yourself, Stop living in sin. Start helping the poor. Maybe, maybe the judgment will be prolonged. We know that um, God sent uh, Jonah to uh, to uh, Nineveh, okay, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. If you ever study anything about the Assyrians, they were pretty brutal people. And they had gotten so bad that God sent, sent jo- Jonah didn't want to go. We know that. Jonah wanted them to get blasted and wiped out because he hated them because they were so brutal. They, they just did horrible things to the people they, they conquered. But God says, no, you go, and gave him a little incentive program. And so he, he went there and, and all, and, and he walked through the, the town. And, of course, the way he looked would have frightened anybody, you know. I mean, three days in the belly of a great fish or whale or something, and the gastric juice has probably bleached his skin completely white, dissolved all the hair in his body. And so, you know, he, see a guy like that walking through the center of town saying, repent. You know what? You're probably going to repent, okay? Uh, and they did. They repented. And it was only, you know, what, 40 days comes destruction? They were only 40 days away from judgment. They repented, and God gave them another 150 years before they actually fell. And God has done this, okay? God has done this. Um, he's very gracious. And so, uh, you know, Daniel tells them this, and we don't see in the text that the king took Daniel's advice. doesn't say specifically, but I think it's possible that he did try to change his ways, because the judgment doesn't fall upon him for another twelve full months. We see in verse twenty-eight, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. So he was probably walking on the uh, roof of the palace, which, as we have said numerous times, in those days were patios. And he walking on the roof of the palace there in Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that, listen, I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, let me just stop and say this. Let me acknowledge that ancient Babylon was a magnificent city. So in that regard, Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely right. As we have said, the city of Babylon um, was uh, 15 miles in each direction. It was built over the euphrates river so the river went right through the center of town and giving them uh, an inexhaustible supply of water uh, nebuchadnezzar built uh, for his wife uh, these hanging gardens which were one of the wonders of the ancient world the walls of the city of babylon were 350 feet high and every so many feet i think 100 or 200 feet more was a, a tower that extended another 100 feet, 450 feet up from the ground. There was an, an inner wall, uh, which was separated by a moat that went around the entire city. I mean, the, 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 uh, the first wall, the outer wall was so thick, 88 feet, they used to have chariot races, six abreast, on the wall of the, of the, uh, the city of Babylon. I mean, no wonder they felt invincible. No wonder when Belshazzar nebuchadnezzar's grandson barricades himself in the city because the medes and the persians are outside trying to conquer the city they felt invincible in fact he threw a party this is like there's no way they're getting in here you know to god nothing's impossible we'll see that next time in chapter five all right so you know when he walks around on top of his palace he's looking at this city i mean it was incredible and he's you know begins to boast that look at this city that i have built By my great power for my majesty. Well, that was the wrong thing to do. Taking credit for what God had said. Um, You know, God God was the one. This is the whole lesson behind this chapter. uh, God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar and all of us, really, that um, everything God, Nebuchadnezzar was taking credit for everything God had done by making uh, the king, the city, and the whole Babylonian empire great. And as the writer of the Proverbs said in chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction. In a haughty look or a haughty spirit before a fall. Look, guys, God says very clearly, he will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory with another. And so we read in verse 31, While the word was still in the king's mouth, boasting about how great he was and how great he great things he had done, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like an eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Well, it's interesting the lengths that God will sometimes go through to humble a sinner and bring them to repentance. I'm sure everyone in this room has got a story from somebody, about somebody you know, how God really went after this person And they were running, and they were, you know, they just didn't want to become a Christian, and God kept pursuing them and kept doing all kinds of things, and finally they just broke. You know, you can only run from God so much. You say, well, why doesn't God pursue everyone like that? I don't know. You'll have to ask him. I do know that the more people who pray for somebody, I think the heart of the Holy Spirit begins to pursue. And I can't tell you, you know, how that works. God doesn't need us. I do think that we won't pray. He'll lay it on somebody else's heart to pray for a person he's wanting to really touch. But it's interesting the lengths that our God will go through uh, at times. to humble a sinner and bring them to repentance. Now, we're not told in the text what happened during the seven years Nebuchadnezzar was crazy and living in the fields like an animal. But tradition tells us that Daniel watched over him and made sure the king was taken care of. Daniel showed kindness to this king. Uh, Tradition says it was Daniel that watched over the king, uh, made sure he was taken care of, made sure he was protected, and so on. Guys, let me just stop and say this. Maybe you know a crazy person, somebody who may act like an animal. Okay, can I just say this? Don't put them down or write them off. Lift them up in prayer. Be kind to them because you never know If God may use you to bring them to their senses. And what did Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 2? That many have been taken captive by the devil. And we pray that God will bring them to their senses so that they may escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's what ministry, that's what evangelism is often all about. We talk about, you know, running into somebody in the street and sharing the gospel and they get saved. Wonderful. That happens. But often, though, it's a war, and the devil has got a hold of somebody, and he's not one to let go, and here come the people of God to begin to pray and pray, and, and, and it's a tug of war, the spiritual. You don't realize it, but it, it, it's the devil's trying to hold on, and, and, and as we pray, the Spirit of God is pulling harder, and, and eventually they come to their senses, and they get saved and escape the snare of the devil. They're no longer the slaves of Satan and sin. They're now children of God. That's where we commit. All right? That's where we commit. So verse 34, at the end of the time, now seven years has passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will. Well, you finally learned the lesson. He's sovereign, okay? He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom an excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down, the ideas he is able to humble. Listen to me, guys. I think it's important because of where we are to just digress for a moment. As much as God resists the proud, and is harsh towards them, who are proud and, and, and arrogant against God, how, how rough he can be with those folks, because he loves them and wants to break them, is it just as kind and gracious he will be when people humble themselves, no matter how bad they have been in life. Okay, Turn to 2 Chronicles 12. Now, 2 Chronicles 12 deals with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. And Rehoboam was not a godly guy, nor was he a very wise man like his father had been. So we pick it up in 2 Chronicles, and I I want you to see this. I'm going to make my point by by reading this to you. 2 Chronicles 12, starting with verse 1. But when Rehoboam was firmly established and strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord, and all Israel followed him in this sin. Because they were unfaithful to the Lord, King Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam's reign. He came with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horses, and a countless army of foot soldiers, including the Libyans, Sukites, and Ethiopians. Shishak, who was the uh, leader of Egypt, conquered Judah's fortified cities and then advanced to attack Jerusalem. The prophet Shemaiah then met with Rehoboam, who was the king of Judah, and Judah's leaders, who all had fled to Jerusalem because of Shishak. Shemaiah told them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, so I am abandoning you to Shishak. Now listen, verse 6. Then the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is right in doing this to us. We deserve this. We have walked away from Him. We have gotten into sin and idolatry. God is righteous. God is. We deserve this. Verse 7. When the Lord saw their change of heart, He gave this message to Shemaiah. Since the people have humbled themselves, I will not completely destroy them and will soon give them some relief. I will not use Shishak to pour out my anger on Jerusalem, but they will become His subjects so that they may they will know the difference between serving me and serving earthly rulers. I love that last part. Very insightful. But here's the thing, and you can read about another character, even worse than Rehoboam, in chapter 33, Manasseh, one of the worst evil kings that Judah ever had, who eventually got saved. But in the height, this guy was into child sacrifice. Every wicked thing you can imagine he was into. And God said, that's it. You're going down, pal. Uh, my judgment is going to fall. And he also humbled himself. Amazing how God then just, well, look, he humbled himself. I won't destroy him. And the guy gets saved eventually. Okay? My point is, no matter how wicked a person's life, if they will humble themselves, acknowledge that they have been violating God's laws, they have been sinning against God, they've been living an evil life, if they humble themselves, there's something very powerful when a person humbles themselves. Uh, he is willing to... Our God does not want to bring judgment. His default setting, if I can put it that way, is mercy. To show mercy. He only brings judgment as a last resort. But even then, when the judgment is at the door, if a person will humble themselves, God will say, okay, that's, that's all I wanted. That You humbled yourself, you acknowledged your sin, and, of course, ultimately it means to come to Christ. Okay. But I just wanted you to see how powerful this is. That we, God is very, the Bible says, woe unto him who strives with his maker. The way the transgressor is hard. As hard-nosed as a person wants to be, God can be that much harder. A person wants to flaunt their sin in the face of a holy God and basically say, look, I don't care what you do to me. Uh, I'm not going to change. And God just keeps ratcheting up the uh, judgment. God can be very tough on people. But what he really wants is for them to humble themselves and to confess their sins because he wants to show them mercy. This, This is what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. God humbled him. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar responded. God can humble a person, but they not take that humbling. They can make themselves even more defiant. Okay, When I say God humbled them, I mean... God turned him into an animal, basically, but he could have snapped out of it and been as as proud as ever. I mean, you know, what I'm saying is God can do things to humble a person, but if that person refuses to humble themselves after God has dealt with them, oftentimes God just says, then, you know what, you're done. I've I've tried to reach you. You don't want to be reached. And it it could be then very soon after that God takes them off the earth. But God did humble Nebuchadnezzar, and he responded to that, humbly, uh, with humility and repentance. And as I said earlier, I believe this is the testimony chapter 4 of a saved man. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. I look forward to meeting him over coffee. I'm sure there'll be a Starbucks in heaven somewhere. And uh, we'll uh, I'd like to talk to him about uh, just the events in the book of Daniel, alright? And so on. But uh, you know, let, me, let me bring this study to a close by sharing with you what uh, some see in the story from a, a prophetic point of view, okay? Uh, it's true. The whole story is, is, uh, is true, and it's uh, historical. No doubt about that. Uh, from a, it's true from a historical standpoint. But uh, as we often see in Scripture, these true stories also have a spiritual and even a prophetic application as well. I'll just read to you with one commentary says to give you the flavor of this, and you can run with it on your own if you feel like it, but he said, and I quote, there seems to be a prophetic significance in this incident as well as, as the, in the one in chapter 3, which we talked about when we were there. Even though God has appointed Gentiles to a place of prominence in his program during the times of the Gentiles, yet most nations and people walk in rebellion against God. This attitude is graphically described in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. You can read about that in your own. The author says, God will deal with the nations to humble them and bring them into subjection to himself. One purpose of the tribulation, tribulation period, which will immediately precede Christ's second coming will be to humble the nations and bring them to the point of subjection to Christ's authority. At the conclusion of God's judgments described in Revelation 6 through chapter 19, Jesus Christ the victorious rider on the white horse, will descend from heaven and smite the nations. Then an angel will announce that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, Revelation 11, verse 15. God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, designed to subject him to God's authority, seems to prefigure God's judgment on the nations to subject them to the authority of the one who has been given the right to rule, end quote. So if that speaks to you, fine. If not, that that's fine too. Uh, but I think that there, there might be something to that, all right? Now, remember that the whole point of this chapter was to teach several lessons. Let me go through them with, with you quickly, and we'll close, okay? Um, the first one, and maybe you can add to these. These are the ones that I came up with that I thought were Kind of obvious, all right, from the chapter. But um, the chapter, again, is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and how God taught him certain things. Yes, about God himself and, and that God is sovereign. But but let me just say this, and that's the first one I, I see here, the first lesson, that God is sovereign over all of his creation, including, listen, all nations and peoples and rulers. He does what he pleases, and no one can challenge or change what he has decided to do. Now, I don't know about you, the Bible says that God is an absolute ruler. He's an absolute sovereign. answers to nobody. doesn't need to have a meeting in heaven before he does things. Whatever he decides, he does. Nobody can say, why are you doing that? How come you don't do it this way? God's in control. The fact that our God is sovereign would terrify me if it wasn't coupled with another truth about God, I believe. That God is absolutely good and loving. I mean, just because God has the ability to do whatever he wants, if he was an evil God, if he was a a, a vicious God, a vindictive God, that would terrify us, right? As we just said, God is a merciful God, very gracious, slow to anger. He wants to forgive. He doesn't want to bring judgment, but he will if he has to because he's a righteous God. So this is a lesson that we, first of all, take away that God is in control, but it's okay with me that God is in control of everything because I know he's a good and loving and gracious God. Therefore, I take great comfort in knowing he's in control. Even though things look sometimes out of control, they're not. Okay, they're not. Sometimes it looks like man is in control and things are spiraling out of God's control. Don't ever buy into that. God's on the throne, and it's all going to make sense someday. But right now, we just know this for a fact. David Jeremiah said, and I quote, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is a political message for all of our leaders. Until Christ returns, the message is simple. Here it is. God rules. God rules. And so all the leaders of this world better take note. That, you know, they're going to have to stand before the sovereign Lord of all the universe someday and give an account for how they ruled over people made in his image. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to be very good for most of them. All right. So that's the first lesson. God is sovereign over all. Number two, God will deal harshly with the proud because he loves them. He wants to break them so he can make them his sons and daughters. But once they become his sons and daughters, listen, by receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior is what I'm thinking now. He shows them great mercy, great kindness, and great blessing. God can deal very harshly with people, not out of vindictiveness, but out of great love to break them. And after they're broken and they come to him, receive Christ and become God's children, well, he shows them great kindness and blessing, even as he did with Nebuchadnezzar. God dealt pretty harshly with Nebuchadnezzar, right? But after he was broken, what happened? God restored him. Not only did God restore him, but the language implies God blessed him even more than he had known before he got saved, which is the case with all of us, really. So, you know, God is uh, very gracious. And only does, you know, people have said to me, when I pray for my spouse who's an unbeliever or my my child or whatever, I, I don't want God to do too much to hurt them before they get saved. You never have to worry about that. God will only do what he has to do to bring somebody to Christ. He, he won't go above and beyond that because he's not wanting to hurt them just for the sake of hurting them. He only brings enough to break them because he loves them. And number three, and you can add to this list, okay, God can restore what sin has robbed us of in heaven for sure, but also many times here on the earth. Turn to Joel chapter 2. Wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar's testimony also? Sin robbed him of his glory, his kingdom, turned him into an animal for seven years. But when he repented, everything changed. God restored him. Remember in Joel chapter 1 how God had spoken to Israel, to the prophet Joel, who at this time in Joel's life was uh, so wicked, so evil, so into idolatry, that God says, I'm bringing judgment. And here's how it's gonna here's part of it. I'm, I'm gonna bring four groups of locusts. The first group is gonna go through your fields and take, eat most of your stuff. What they missed, the second group will pick up on. What they missed, the third group, finally, by the fourth group, nothing's gonna be left. I'm gonna devastate your crops. See, that was a big judgment in those days because obviously what grew out of the ground was life. They, they couldn't go to the The jewel and pick up a loaf of bread you had to grow it the wheat and so on yeah and 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 when god brought judgment often it took the no rain crops withered locusts came that kind of thing but god you know in judgment always remembers mercy as another prophet said and so in joel chapter 2 verse 25 god is talking about how at one point though he will stop the judgment and again bring blessing when the nation repents So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. I sent these armies of locusts to judge you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And that ultimately has its fulfillment in the kingdom age, okay? But I bring it out because I see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life. How that sin robbed him, it God brought him down, judged him, and it robbed him of everything for seven years. But then he was broken, he repented, and God restored the years we might say that the locust had eaten, okay? I can't promise everybody that who has allowed drugs or alcohol or, or, or something else to destroy their marriage or their family or relationships of people they love. I can't guarantee if you give your life to Christ and get right with him, God will restore all the years that the locust of sin has eaten, I can't guarantee that in this, in this life. I know in heaven you're going to receive a hundredfold more than you ever had on earth. But I have seen this happen to people in this life. How they let years of alcoholism, drug abuse, ravage them. Drive every... I keep talking about Mike McIntosh, who's uh, one of my favorite guys in the world. And uh, Mike during the 60s, was a young hippie living out in Southern California into the drug culture, Uh, dropped so much acid that he uh, was declared clinically insane, kind of like a modern-day Ebenezer, okay? Everyone wrote Mike off. They, they, They tried to help him. They brought him to psychiatrists and all kinds of other medical people. And Mike's brain was so fried that everybody basically said he's beyond hope. He's beyond hope. He'll he'll never be better. He's, he's, He's too far gone. His wife, Sandy, couldn't take it anymore, so she finally divorces Mike. I mean, pretty much he had hit rock bottom. And then a group of people took Mike one night to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa where he heard Chuck Smith present the gospel. Right there in his seat, Mike received Christ. And Chuck did as he always had done. If anyone would like to go back to the prayer room, And have the elders pray over them to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Please do that after the service. So Mike goes over to the prayer room. And all the elders, he tells them what was going on. All the elders gather around Mike and lay hands on him and pray over him. That God would heal him and fill him with his spirit. This is Mike's own testimony. I read the book he wrote. He said, as they were praying, I felt like an electric shock shot through my body. And I knew immediately God had just healed me. Completely from all the years of acid and everything else, God put Mike in his right mind and restored to him all the years. Not just restored, his wife came back, they got remarried. God put Mike into ministry. He went on to have a church of 15,000 people or so, went all over the world preaching the gospel. You tell me that's not a real life story of how God can restore a hundredfold more than the locusts have eaten if a person will give their heart to Christ and get right with God. So, you know, our God is, is amazing. Our God is amazing. And I just want to read to you verses 36 and 7 again and we'll close. At that time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. God gave me more glory than I had before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down, but let me add, those who humble themselves he is able to lift up. Amen. Father, we thank you for the testimony of a pagan king who became a child of God. And thank you, Lord, that nobody is so far gone that you can't reach them. And we pray for all those that we love, Lord, who are running from you, defiant against you. Lord, pursue them, tackle them, save them, and restore to them all the years their sin is eaten, that they might serve you. That they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do as well. That they might become children of the Most High God's servants to bring the gospel to those in darkness and to give glory to the God who alone is the God of gods, the King of kings. We thank you, Lord, that we now serve a living, loving, sovereign Lord. Use us, Lord beyond anything we could even hope or imagine in these last days. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.